When it comes to the plant-based eating debate, there's more to consider than just healthy or unhealthy. Of course, we want to eat things that make us feel good and generate energy to keep us going, but there's also a major environmental component that drives a lot of people to a plant-focused diet. But you don't have to give up some of your faves entirely. Impossible Foods makes meat from plants. They're solving the meat problem with more meat. By creating delicious meat from plants that's better for you and the planet, Impossible lets you enjoy some of your favorite meaty products with a plant-based twist. Ground beef, homestyle meatballs, sausage patties, all made from plants. And that's just a few of their delicious and versatile options. No more tension between craving meat but not wanting to eat so much of it or sacrificing your carnivorous faves for your health. Indulge in nutrient-packed, plant-based goodness and feel good doing it. Check out impossiblefoods.com to see how you can help solve the meat problem with more meat. That's I-M-P-O-S-S-I-B-L-E-F-O-O-D-S.com. Hello and welcome to Pop Crime, where the gavel meets the gossip, where we deep dive into the latest scandals and trending celebrity legal dramas, as well as the infamous crimes and dirty deeds of the pop culture past. I'm Kiki Monique, and if you follow me online, you probably know me as the talk of shame. For the last few years, I've been your go-to source for the biggest pop culture stories, celebrity scandals, famous trials. I am not a lawyer, but I am a boots-on-the-ground investigative reporter and a nosy Sagittarius who loves to absorb all the nitty-gritty details and break it down for you. Every week, I'll unpack a new story in the pop culture true crime world, either something that's happening in real time or reach back into the past. And I'll even have some of your favorite creators, attorneys, and other guests on the show to weigh in. Our sources for this episode are Vlad TV. Black Enterprise, the Family Pock Twitter account, and TMZ. The other sources are listed in our show notes. This week, I want to go back to the future a bit with a case that has been unsolved for a majority of many of our lives, but has now come back into the spotlight. The murder of rapper Tupac Shakur. There's a saying, Loose lips sink ships that originated and was used on propaganda during World War II. And while experts and historians argue about the purpose behind the phrase, everyone can agree on the basic meaning behind it, and that's to keep your mouth shut. Yet, 80 plus years later, people still can't shut up, even if it's to their own detriment. Everyone has an opinion or a hot take. But to really stand out, you need to be talking about something that nobody else can because it's something only you know. When Tupac Shakur was murdered, his suspected killer allegedly bragged about it to everyone in his hood immediately after. And why wouldn't someone who just gunned down one of the most famous rappers in the world not want to peacock around and get the street cred and respect they felt they deserved. And so 27 years later, when breaking news comes out that a house in Las Vegas had been raided and that was connected to possibly solving the murder of Tupac, it was no surprise when it was later learned that raid came about because of, drum roll please, loose lips. 
And surprisingly, those loose lips didn't belong to Jada Pinkett Smith because with the mention it all style book tour she's been on to promote the release of her memoir, we have learned more information than we probably should from Jada about Tupac. So it probably wouldn't have shocked us if she said she knew who killed Tupac, but alas, Jada was not the source. It was a former gang member by the name Dwayne Davis who went by the street name Keefe D. He was actually on his own promotional book tour, a book that seemed to hold all the answers to the Tupac murder after all these years. In 2019, he self-published a memoir called Compton Street Legend. And in the book, he details how he was in Las Vegas on September 7th, 1996, the night Tupac was shot. Two months after the raid on that Las Vegas house, Keefe D was arrested and charged with one count of open murder with a gang enhancement. But as the internet began to do their own investigating on the story, even more shocking revelations started to come out. One, an audio recording of Keefe D claiming it was Sean Combs, AKA Puff Daddy, Puffy, P Diddy, Diddy, or as he's currently referred to, Love the former friend and producer of Notorious B.I.G., a.k.a. Biggie Smalls, or Biggie, that had hired Keefe D. to kill Tupac. Diddy, of course, adamantly denies that claim. So what is the truth, and why now? What happened in the nearly 30 years since Tupac was killed? And what happens next? Well, that's what I'm here to answer. Coincidentally, in 2022, I was hired to promote a docu-series called Who Killed Biggie and Tupac, which essentially laid out the motives and theories for both of their murders and became a major reference source for this deep dive. And based on all the evidence that was shown throughout this series, it seemed clear there was enough evidence to solve these murders, but nothing publicly was being done. But perhaps... What it did was nudge the hand of law enforcement to finally take action on this case because flash forward to a year later and we suddenly have an arrest in the murder of Tupac. But before we get into how that arrest came to be, let me first give some background on the rise of Tupac. And let me also mention it's impossible to talk about the death of Tupac without also talking about Biggie Smalls because the reality is even though their deaths came about because of this manufactured East Coast versus West Coast beef that became real beef, the two of them started out as good friends, which is what makes this entire story so tragic. Tupac Shakur was born June 16th, 1971 in Harlem, New York. Both his parents were political activists and members of the Black Panther Party, but Tupac's father was not around, so he was raised by his mother. Life was hard in New York. Tupac's mother struggled with addiction. And in 1984, Tupac and his mother moved to Baltimore, Maryland. And in the 10th grade, Tupac transferred to the Baltimore School for the Arts. This is actually the high school where he met and befriended Jada Pinkett. There, Tupac studied acting, poetry, jazz, and ballet. And according to Stephanie Frederick, who was a journalist who covered hip-hop music and culture in the 90s, this is the school that probably saved Tupac. 
It's where he says he was his happiest and was the training ground for the artist he would become. Tupac and his mother ended up moving again and ended up in Oakland where he attended another high school, but he never graduated. He would later go on to earn his GED. Oakland is also where his mother became a crack addict. But he loved his mother dearly. He never blamed her or looked down on her because of this. Tupac started recording and taking poetry classes back in New York, and he signed with the manager who also managed the group Digital Underground. And Tupac became a roadie and backup dancer for the group. Tupac's debut album, Tupacalypse Now, was released in 1991, and that album was so popular and controversial, the U.S. vice president at the time, Dan Quayle, actually called on the record company to remove the album. The U.S. vice president claimed that the record was responsible for the death of a Texas state trooper who was shot and killed by a suspect who allegedly was listening to the album in the stolen truck the slain officer pulled him over in. Vice President Quayle was quoted as saying, there is absolutely no reason for a record like this to be published by a responsible corporation. Today, I'm suggesting that the Time Warner subsidiary Interscope Records withdraw this record. It has no place in our society. The album, however, went on to become certified gold with over half a million sales, and rappers like Nas and Eminem still cite it as inspiration. Tupac released two more commercially successful albums in 1993 and 94, and was a huge hitmaker by the time he met Notorious B.I.G. in 1993 in Los Angeles. When Biggie was in L.A. or Tupac would be in New York, the two would hang together, and Tupac helped launch Biggie's career by letting Biggie open for him. It was reported that Biggie even asked Tupac to manage him, but according to Vice magazine, Tupac told him that Sean P. Diddy Combs would make him a star. Tupac did offer Biggie the opportunity to join his group Thug Life, but Biggie ended up starting Junior Mafia with Lil C's and Lil Kim instead. So now we're at November 30th, 1994, and Tupac is on trial in New York for sexual abuse, sodomy, and weapons possession. There was a woman who claimed Tupac had set her up to be raped in a hotel room. Now, Tupac had mounting legal bills and he needed to make some quick cash. And he was reportedly offered $7,000 by a music manager to drop by Quad Recording Studios to record a verse for one of his clients. Biggie also happened to be at Quad Studios that same night and Little C's was there and tells Biggie that Tupac is at the studio and Biggie tells C's, bring him up. Lil C's goes to the lobby and sees some guys have followed Tupac in from the street. The three men rob and beat Tupac at gunpoint. Tupac tried to fight back and was shot. When Biggie heard what happened, he went to the hospital, but Tupac thought Biggie had set him up. The day after Tupac is shot, he arrives wrapped in bandages in a wheelchair at a Manhattan courthouse to hear the verdict in his sex abuse case. Tupac is acquitted of the sodomy and weapons charges, but is convicted of sexual abuse. In a phone conversation that later surfaced between Tupac and a friend, Tupac revealed that he thought his accuser was connected to and had an intimate relationship with the music manager he believed set him up in the quad studio shooting. 
And in a 1995 interview with Vibe, Tupac also accused Diddy and Biggie of being involved in that setup. This was the start of East Coast versus West Coast war. On the East Coast, you have Bad Boy Records run by Puffy and his main artist is Biggie. And on the West Coast, you have Death Row Records run by Suge Knight with artists Snoop Dogg and Dre and soon Tupac. In January 1995, Tupac begins serving his prison sentence for the sex abuse case. And while he's incarcerated, he begins making diss tracks against Biggie because he's still convinced he set him up. Tupac is eventually sent to Clinton Correctional Facility. He was appealing his conviction, but didn't have the million-dollar bail money. That's where Suge Knight came into his life. On August 3rd, 1995, Suge went to visit Tupac in prison and Tupac agreed to a three record deal with Death Row Records. After the prison visit, Suge Knight goes directly to the Source Awards in NYC and in front of the NYC audience completely disses Puff Daddy, which is basically shots fired, no pun intended. Like to tell Tupac to keep his guards up, we ride with him. Any artist out there want to be an artist and want to stay a star, don't want to, don't have to worry about the executive producer trying to be all in the video, all on the record, dancing, come to death row. Suge paid the $1.4 million bail and flew Tupac out to LA. Less than a year after taking that flight, Tupac was dead. Why and how? When it comes to the plant-based eating debate, there's more to consider than just healthy or unhealthy. Of course, we want to eat things that make us feel good and generate energy to keep us going. But there's also a major environmental component that drives a lot of people to a plant-focused diet. But you don't have to give up some of your faves entirely. Impossible Foods makes meat from plants. They're solving the meat problem with more meat. By creating delicious meat from plants that's better for you and the planet, Impossible lets you enjoy some of your favorite meaty products with a plant-based twist. Ground beef, homestyle meatballs, sausage patties, all made from plants. And that's just a few of their delicious and versatile options. No more tension between craving meat but not wanting to eat so much of it or sacrificing your carnivorous faves for your health. Indulge in nutrient-packed, plant-based goodness and feel good doing it. Check out impossiblefoods.com to see how you can help solve the meat problem with more meat. That's I-M-P-O-S-S-I-B-L-E-F-O-O-D-S.com. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. For just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles each month. You can choose whatever you want to rent for whatever you have going on. It's totally up to you. There are no fees, late fees, damage fees, or fees to pause or cancel. So no big deal if you lose a button or spill something or just need to take a break. They have inclusive sizing up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. Get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning in Newly's state-of-the-art laundering facility. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. 
Newly is a great value at $98 a month for any six styles. But right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code POPCRIME20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's Newly with two U's and enter the code POPCRIME20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com. Newly with two U's with code POPCRIME20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. So a month after the Source Awards, there's a confrontation at a nightclub where Suge Knight's security, Jake Robles, is shot by Puffy's security, Anthony Jones. Suge blames Puffy. So Puffy realizes he needs protection and he starts to align himself with Dwayne Keefe D. Davis, who's a Southside Crip gang member. Keefe D begins providing unofficial security for Bad Boy Records when they would come out to California or go on tour. Keefe D later alleges that Puffy offered him a million dollars to have Suge and Tupac killed. Suge Knight was clearly an intimidating character and people feared him and his crew. He employed a squad of gang members, elite bloods at death row. Everyone there had a prison record. This was the polar opposite of who Tupac was known to be. Tupac was all about bettering himself, but Suge took him in a different direction of thug and gang life. So then Biggie releases a song called Who Shotcha? And Tupac thought the song was about that night at Quad Studios when he was robbed and shot and was convinced Biggie set him up. But the song was actually written before the shooting, so Biggie never thought Tupac would think the song was about him. But Tupac was just so deep into his thug life persona and believed in the beef, so he wrote Hit Him Up, which is considered one of the biggest diss records in history. Biggie was pissed, but wanted to reach out and squash the beef once and for all. But once Tupac was with Death Row, it was impossible. Then comes the fateful night, September 7th, 1996 in Las Vegas. Mike Tyson is boxing at the MGM Grand and Tupac went to see Tyson fight. Right after the fight and just hours before Tupac was shot, Tupac, Suge, and other members of their death row entourage attacked a man in the casino. Suge, Tupac, and their entourage are walking through the casino and one of their entourage members, Trayvon Lane, who is a member of Mob Pyru Gang, spots a man named Orlando Anderson. Orlando happens to be the nephew of Keefe D. 
Just months before this brawl in Vegas, Orlando Anderson and a couple members of his gang, the Southside Crips, had run into Trayvon Lane and other members of the mob Piru at Lakewood Mall in Southern California. And this resulted in an altercation where they tried to snatch Trayvon's death row medallion from him. So when Trayvon sees Orlando in Vegas, something has to be done. So Tupac rushes over, sucker punches Orlando, and Suge and other members begin to stomp Orlando until it's broken up by security. But by gang rules, Orlando was kind of high up in the pecking order, not someone you should touch. But Tupac didn't know the rules. He didn't realize what he had set off. He had picked a real crip. Now here is a random pop culture tidbit. After that fight, Tupac went to his hotel room at the Luxor where his girlfriend was. And his girlfriend at the time was Kidada Jones, the daughter of mega music icon Quincy Jones and late actress Peggy Lipton and the sister of Parks and Rec's actress Rashida Jones. So he goes back to the hotel, tells her about the fight, and then leaves with Suge to go to Suge's nightclub, Club 662, to perform at a charity concert. Now, KVD was already at the MGM Casino, so he meets up with his nephew, Orlando, and they start to plan retaliation. They get into a white Cadillac and head towards Club 662. KVD said this gave them the opportunity to, one, exact revenge for his nephew, but also the opportunity to further the agreement that he says he had with Puffy to eliminate Suge Knight and Tupac Shakur. They get to Club 662, wait for about 15 to 20 minutes, but people begin to spot them, so they leave. But as they're leaving, they see this caravan of cars on Las Vegas Boulevard, and girls start yelling, Tupac, Tupac, so they make a U-turn. It was Tupac's own fans who gave up his identity. According to Keefe D, Orlando Anderson leans out the window and pulls up to the BMW with Suge and Tupac and fires multiple rounds. Tupac was hit four times, twice in the chest, once in the arm, once in the thigh. One of the bullets went into Tupac's right lung. Suge was hit in the head by fragments. Despite his injuries and now having a flat tire, Suge drove away. He was pulled over and paramedics were called. They arrived and took Suge and Tupac to the hospital. On Friday the 13th, September 1996, Tupac died of respiratory failure that led to cardiac arrest after the removal of his right lung. Doctors attempted to revive him, but could not stop the hemorrhaging. He was pronounced dead at 4.03 p.m. Suge Knight said in an ABC primetime interview a year after the shooting that he did not know who had shot Tupac. But when he was asked, if he did know, would he tell the police? He responded, absolutely not. Everybody knew who it was that night, but it seemed with gang code, nobody was going to talk to the police. Right after the shooting, Orlando Anderson was supposedly bragging to everyone about it. But after he found out Tupac had died, he stopped bragging. Orlando was arrested for an unrelated murder to Tupac and they were able to question him but the Las Vegas Police Department said they didn't have the evidence they needed to charge him. Now, some people believe the reason the case wasn't pursued was because a trial like that would be bad publicity for Las Vegas. They didn't want the stain of, quote, gang life. 
But everyone wanted to talk to Orlando, so journalist Stephanie Frederick interviewed him. He denied the shooting in the interview. Let me just ask you point blank, did you kill Tupac Shakur? First of all, I didn't, you know, I, it's like I didn't kill Tupac. Six months after Tupac was killed, Biggie was killed in a drive-by shooting in Los Angeles on March 9th, 1997. And years later, while trying to solve Biggie's murder, they inadvertently may have solved Tupac's. In April 2002, five years after Biggie's murder, there had been no progress made. So Biggie's family sued the city of Los Angeles. They claimed there was a cover-up and that off-duty police officers were involved in the murder. It was the biggest wrongful death lawsuit in Los Angeles's history. And there were allegations that there were dirty cops in the LAPD who were involved in Biggie's murder. So in 2006, Greg Keating, who was an LAPD homicide detective, was asked to join a federal task force to take a fresh look into Biggie's murder. Because as this lawsuit had worked its way through the court, there was an estimation that Biggie's lifetime earning potential could be upward of $400 million. And with that amount of money of a lawsuit looming over the department's head, they really had to determine if there was any truth to the allegations that LAPD was complicit in the murder or complicit in covering it up. So now in 2008, we're nearly two years into this federal task force investigation when they finally start making some headway towards Keefe D. They were really convinced that Keefe D knew something because he was present at the Peterson Audi Museum the night Biggie was killed and was in Las Vegas the night Tupac was killed. But Keefe D wouldn't speak to cops, so they had to compel him to cooperate. So they developed a drug case against Keefe D to put him in a corner where it's in his best interest to cooperate. They gave him an ultimatum, either cooperate and tell them what he knows about Biggie's murder or face a 25-year prison sentence. Keefe D and his attorney agreed to the terms of this proffer agreement. So a proffer agreement is a written agreement between a prosecutor and a defendant or a prospective witness that allows the defendant or witness to give the prosecutor information about an alleged crime while limiting the prosecutor's ability to use that information against him or her. Now, this is a tool that basically gives someone being questioned the comfort of knowing that they're not talking themselves into jail. But Keefe D says he can't give the detective information on Biggie shooting, but he can give up information about Tupac's. Keefe D confessed to giving his nephew, Orlando Anderson, the gun to shoot Tupac. But by the time Keefe D confessed in 2008 to his role in Tupac's murder and identifies his nephew as Tupac's shooter, nearly 10 years has gone by and Orlando is dead. He was killed in a drug dispute. In this interrogation, Keefe D also ends up offering information about the person he alleges hired him to do it, Sean Puffy Combs. 
KVD says he would get a million dollars if he took care of these guys. Puffy denies this conversation took place. Even though it seemed police knew all the players involved in the shooting, Orlando was dead, and with this proffer agreement that federal agents had signed with Keefe D, they couldn't charge him at the time with conspiracy to commit murder. This proffer agreement is what shielded Keefe D for so long, but his loose lips invalidated that agreement. Keefe D started doing interviews with Vlad TV and released his 2019 memoir, which Detective Kading says left the door wide open for law enforcement to charge Keefe D with the murder. Kading explained that the proffer agreement only protected Keefe D when that information is kept confidential. Kading was quoted as saying he thought he had some type of immunity, and so he went out there and boasted. Now it's come back to haunt him. The exact language in the proffer agreement is unknown and was not presented to the grand jury, but Kifidi's interviews over the years about Tupac's murder, along with his 2019 autobiography, were used as evidence and presented to the grand jury. According to former Clark County Prosecutor James Sweeten, who was interviewed by KTNV about this case, Kifidi's attorneys may argue he has immunity, but prosecutors could also argue that those protections don't hold in Las Vegas because the agreement was made in another jurisdiction. Sweeten said another issue they may have is that the fact that it was another law enforcement agency at another location that conducted this proffer and made this agreement. The DA's office and the local law enforcement in Las Vegas had nothing to do with that agreement. But Sweeten said he's confident that the DA's office has collected enough evidence outside of the proffer agreement to prosecute Keefe D. Now, there were several unconfirmed rumors swirling after Keefe D's arrest that Sean Puffy Combs may also get brought in for questioning, but currently there are no arrest records for Combs to show that has happened. Rapper 50 Cent has not been shy about calling out Puffy about the rumors that he was involved in Tupac's murder, even making comments on stage at a recent performance. Whether Keefe D has finally decided to seal his loose lips is still TBD because DJ Vlad of Vlad TV, whose interviews with Keefe D over the years are part of the reason he is now behind bars, claims he paid money for an exclusive interview to discuss the raid of his home this year that led to his arrest. But DJ Vlad claims Keefe D took the money and ran, so the interview never took place. So perhaps Keefe D has finally learned to tighten those lips. After multiple delays, Dwayne Keefe D. Davis was finally arraigned on November 2nd, 2023. According to the Associated Press, his wife, daughter, and son were present in the courtroom. Davis pled not guilty to the murder charges. Prosecutors are not seeking the death penalty in this case, but Davis is facing life in prison if convicted. The judge assigned public defenders Robert Arroyo and Charles Kano to represent Davis. The next hearing was then scheduled for November 7th to set a trial date. 
According to the Daily Mail, Keefe D's trial date has been set for June 3rd, 2024. Coming up, we speak with attorney and former deputy DA of Los Angeles, Emily D. Baker, who is the internet's favorite legal analyst and hosts a YouTube channel and podcast dedicated to true crime legal commentary to get her insights on this case. Emily, welcome to Pop Crime. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited. Love the new podcast and really happy to be here with you. I know. I can't believe like this is like we have known each other like online. I feel like for it feels like years at this point. It's been at least a couple of years. But like we didn't meet until the first time in person until we got to BravoCon together, which was kind of crazy, right? (laughs) (laughs) And it was too brief because it was so busy. You were so busy interviewing literally everyone. It was it was bananas. But I'm so glad we met because most of these cases I talk about, I would want to talk about with no one else but you, but especially the Tupac case, specifically because you were a district attorney in Los Angeles, which is like central to this case. I'm just curious, like, were you a Tupac fan back in the day when he was killed? Absolutely. I was I was all in for the East Coast, West Coast 90s-ness of it all. I graduated from high school in the mid-90s and listened to this music. I remember this happening. So it's kind of crazy to look back and be like, I remember what this was like when it happened. I remembered, you know, at that time, this was not uncommon that that rappers were getting killed and that there were, you know, shootings between various gangs. It was not unusual, but it was still stunning. It was like, not again, not again. And so it was, it was wild losing Tupac and Biggie. It was just, it was crazy stuff. So yeah, I remember it uh, when it happened. How about you? I do too. I mean, I was on the East Coast. Were you in Los Angeles at the time? I was. Okay, so I lived on the East Coast. So it was funny because I feel like, yes, I remember everything around Tupac, but I remember to the detail, like what I was wearing when I heard about Biggie, because it's just like East Coast was so big in my mind. But just like gang culture in general, like part of the reason I wanted to be in LA was because growing up, I remember watching um, like an HBO like documentary called like something like Bangers and Little Rock. And even that, it was just sort of like, don't wear red if you go out there. Don't wear blue. You know, make sure you wear neutral colors. Like gang culture became infiltrated in our life and it was hard to separate it, which was why I think that this case just became like just so big in our lives. Absolutely. It it absolutely became part of culture and cultural awareness. And it was interesting becoming a district attorney and then working in, I worked in Long Beach for quite a long time, which borders right up to Compton. A lot of my friends worked in Compton. So even coming into the DA's office, this was stuff that I had been aware of, even though it was not exactly my neighborhood where I grew up. It was still, it was still so surrounding everything growing up in Los Angeles, especially after like the Watts riots, we were you know, well aware of of what was going on in South Central LA and Long Beach and Compton growing up in Southern California. And then when you start to work in it, you're like, oh, wait, I, you know, either I have heard of this gang from life or from music. And a lot of times it was from music because they were 
so much talking about uh, their gangs in in their music. Mm -hmm. Now, we're going to get into a lot of the things that you will be well-versed in, like the proffer agreement and how that all plays into this. But I'm just curious, like, why do you think this arrest happened now just generally? Like, do you think it does have to do with, like, the fact that Keefe D, you know, broke this proffer agreement? Or do you think there were other reasons why they, why this all happened now? Him writing and publishing the book was a big part of it. I, I, I believe there was probably some insult to injury because it's not been an, a secret that people believed Keefe D was involved in this. They, everyone knew he was in that car. Um, a lot of people knew that he was the one who provided the gun. It was not a surprise to anyone when there was arrest in this case who it was. The surprise was that there was an arrest. So why now? I want to know what exactly led them to get the search warrants. It had to be the book plus something that led to search warrants that allowed Las Vegas to then take it to a grand jury and move forward with it. I don't know what that thing is yet, and we might not know till trial. There's not going to be a preliminary hearing because of that grand jury indictment. But something between the book and the indictment allowed them to get a new search warrant that allowed them to find things to support the stories that Keefe told in his book and in interviews that are still up on YouTube and elsewhere. I mean, what do you think it was about this proffer agreement that made him feel so comfortable? Do you think he was just not educated on what he was allowed to do? Or it just had been so long that he figured, like, they can't possibly come after me now. What you said was exactly right, that the proffer agreement made him comfortable. But the proffer agreement is with the federal government, not with state governments. His lawyer should have explained to him very well that the proffer agreement does not stop the states from going after him unless there is something in that proffer agreement that is unusual that would stop a state prosecution. But if it did, we should have heard about that, I would think, already, because he just was arraigned. Yeah, I saw he was arraigned. He pled not guilty. And I read somewhere where I guess uh, maybe it was like the DA for Las Vegas said, like, there could be issues come the trial because, you know, this proffer agreement was made in a different district. But you're saying it was a federal agreement. So it doesn't even matter that it was made with like a Los Angeles detective, I guess. It was the proffer agreement was a federal proffer agreement to stop him from being prosecuted federally. It was give us this information and we won't prosecute these mostly narcotics and weapons charges federally. But it might be an issue depending on the wording of that agreement. But I would hope, and my hopes have been dashed before, that the Las Vegas detectives and district attorneys had looked at that agreement before they went forward with this prosecution. They might not have, which would be embarrassing. But we've seen DAs do embarrassing things before. But they should have known exactly what the feds promised because you can be prosecuted for murder federally or state side. So I don't know what they're going to do with this proffer, but yeah, it might be a very big problem depending on what's exactly in it. And that might've been why he was so comfortable writing the book and then talking about the proffer agreement, but talking about the proffer agreement in the book and saying what he said might violate the proffer agreement. <laughs> do you think that it's helpful that so many people involved in this case are dead? Or do you think that's like not helpful in his case? And it can cut both ways because he starts his book with 
the only two living people are him and Suge Knight. Suge Knight, who was prosecuted in Los Angeles and is in prison. So it can help. It depends if Suge has anything to say after he wrote this book, too. I'm sure the book pissed off quite a few folks. So it that could help that other people aren't there to corroborate it and could argue that he's just bolstering. But a lot of what he says in the book is corroborated from video that we've already seen the DAs um, in Las Vegas make public of the fight that went down earlier in the night. And though there might not be other people to the Vegas shooting, I know there's going to be law enforcement, even if they are retired, that remember the events leading up to that fight in Las Vegas, because there were numerous events that happened in Los Angeles that led up to that fight in Las Vegas. So there will still be law enforcement around that was part of that. And I'm sure Las Vegas is working closely with Los Angeles because those detectives in LA worked these cases for so long. And a lot of these detectives worked these cases for so long. Of course, the ones that weren't part of the Rampart scandal, which also ties into all of this. So, you know, that's a whole they have to other. find the cops that weren't corrupt uh, yeah. that were involved in this. Which, I mean, I think we know is kind of like a little bit difficult. There was just a lot of corruption in that department back so then. So much. Now, you bring mm-hmm. up Suge Knight, and I mean, I don't know how true this is because, you know, t- the Twitterverse, like, what's true? You know, I think someone said that he said he wasn't going to talk at all. I'm just, you know, he's serving, Suge is serving a 28-year sentence. I would think that if somebody came to him to talk and offered him a deal, I mean, I feel like he might talk. I don't think it always has to be about street justice with Suge. What do you think? He said he wasn't going to talk, but I also wonder if that was before this book came out. So again, the book might change the code a little bit here where Suge might be like, you know what? I would never talk, but if you're going to try to throw me under the bus, I have a few things to say about it. We'll see. Now, what do you think of this, you know, these P. Diddy rumors? I mean, we've heard this tape of Keefe D claiming that he was paid allegedly by, you know, P. Diddy to take out Tupac. Like, do you, I mean, and then we heard rumors, which again, not confirmed, people saying that, you know, P. Diddy had been questioned and like not arrested, but like questioned. And I don't know how true these things are. Do you think there could be a chance that, you know, we could see P. Diddy at trial? I think there's a chance we could see him at trial because he was involved in all these events leading up to this. He was a part of this world. We could see him as a witness. Do I think he's been interviewed? Probably. I'd be surprised if he hadn't been. But again, this book also points the finger at P. Diddy um, asking for these murders to be completed, which a lot of people are going to go, Isn't that a crime? Yes, but it takes quite a lot to prosecute murder for hire. Um, And again, I don't know how much weight we put onto Keefe D's book, but he said that he was never fully paid for it. So, and how many years ago this was, tracking back those payments would be incredibly difficult. Normally with murder for hires being prosecuted, and I worked in an office where they were prosecuted, you have emails, you have bank exchanges, sometimes you have text messages, you have evidence outside of one person saying, oh, the other person asked me this. Because of how old this case is, that's going to be difficult to find. And people weren't emailing these things back in, you know, 1993. So 
it wasn't happening. No, they're like showing up with money in the back of an Impala. Yeah, exactly. like a lowrider. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what other things do you think, you know, we might expect at trial? Are there anything you think could come out that, I don't know, we might not even be thinking about? I don't know if there's more to this unless we get more details about the killing of Biggie as well because of this prosecution with the killing of Tupac because the two are so intertwined. So that might be a surprise. I The two big questions I have, and when I saw this arrest, the questions I had then were, what led them to get a search warrant this late after the murder happened? What did they find in this search warrant? And what is, what if anything, oh God, I sound like Elaine from Duffy Heard. <laughs> what is, what is there with regard to this proffer agreement from the federal government and does that proffer make it difficult or was that proffer specifically limited to federal prosecution, not state prosecution? So that was lawyer math. Those were three when I said two. Perfect. But that's what I want to see. Would you ever fly to Vegas to watch this trial? Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay, good. So we, sh we should go together. Absolutely. <laughs> but I think they'll probably stream it. Oh, that would be amazing. State court is so much more helpful with this and they've covered all of the uh, court appearances on video. So, so far the court hasn't shut that down. I very much hope that this is a trial that streamed. So many were impacted by Tupac, his life, his music. I think there's a lot of people who would be very interested to see this trial and to see justice served in this case and not be able to get to Vegas to sit and watch this in court. I think it's I advocate for cameras in every courtroom, not just because it benefits me, because this is what I do for a job, but I think it helps people become more familiar with our system and with how much police corruption was involved in the early 90s, in the, you know, gang wars in Los Angeles. I think the only way that people would feel comfortable with this case going forward is to watch it for themselves. You make such an excellent point. I think you're right. They have to televise it because at this point, who do we trust? Because, you know, you bring up how the Biggie Smalls murder is so intertwined. And I, you know, I'm one of those people, you know, after watching so many of these documentaries and really thinking, you know, if Biggie's murder is solved, it might cost the city of Los Angeles hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, it's not like they haven't been there before, Kiki. I mean... <laughs> Wow. And, you know, and like, again, there's just so many, there's so many pop culture elements. I mean, I, I was even just like surprised reading through this case. And like, I was like, I didn't remember that Rashida Jones' sister was dating Tupac at the time. And like all of yep. these things that, you know, like reliving it is going to be wild. I think it'll be, it'll be the trial of the century. I didn't know how uh, how strongly Jada Pickett felt about Tupac either until after this. I There is so much that I hadn't, and I was I was so much younger. The internet wasn't what it is now. And so information wasn't so easily available. It was kind of these curated stories coming out um, when it happened. So now everybody's just digging back into it. And there, I feel like there's more information than there was. Or maybe I'm just much better at absorbing it. But it's we're learning more. And again, when I saw that Keefe had put out this book, it is a very short read. It is a very short audio listen. I went through this thing in like a day and I was like, I cannot believe somebody published this before they died. I can't believe you would put this book out. Wow. Um, and I'm, 
I really want someone to interview him when this is all over, whether it's in jail or not, and ask him just what were you thinking and put a mic in his face. What were you thinking and go? Because these are the types of books you publish after death. These are not the types of books you publish while you are still alive. Like, wow. What are we doing? That is something. Yep. Well, I hope you get the interview. Um, Emily, this is why you are the internet's favorite legal analyst, because you always have all the good hot takes and all the good questions. Tell all the listeners where they can find you. Absolutely. I am at the Emily D. Baker all over social media. My podcast is The Emily Show, and I stream on YouTube twice a week unless I'm in trial. Next big trial coming up, Murdaugh part two, if they don't get Judge Newman kicked off. So I know you looked at Murdaugh a lot too. He's going to trial for just one of the financial cases. So we get another week in South Carolina with everybody with those kind of slow molasses accents. It's going to be really fun. Oh my God, I can't wait. I'm definitely going to be following you. Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you, Kiki. Good to see you. Pop Crime is produced by Sean Kilby, Shannon Sassone, and me, Kiki Monique. Editing by Shannon Sassone, guest booking by Ali Freelander. And be sure to follow me at The Talk of Shame on TikTok and Instagram and send your emails to podcast at betches.com. Betches.